Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. I am, with steadfast commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finnerin. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener, you find the content on this channel enlightening, entertaining, soothing to the ear, or stimulating to the mind, please do consider subscribing to this channel and sharing it with some friends and family. Here on Finneran's Wake, you'll find a lively assortment of guests from all different fields uh, from whom you can learn a de great deal uh, or with whom you can simply and enjoyably beguile your day. That said, I humbly welcome you to join our growing community of conversationalists, of which you'll be not only a valued, but a deeply cherished member. My distinguished guest today, with whom I'm very eager to chat, is Dan Levitt. For the promulgation of good science to the general public, in a format and a language that is accessible to all, we look now more than ever to trusted figures like Dan. For over a quarter century, Dan has written, produced, and directed an array of award-winning documentaries. His work has appeared on some of the best-known and well-respected outfits, including National Geographic, Discovery, Science, History, and PBS, all channels by whose amazing content I know I am not infrequently engrossed. After abandoning chemistry for cognitive psychology in college, Dan joined the Peace Corps, which landed him an assignment in Africa. There, in a remote Kenyan village, Dan taught science, biology, physics, and also history. Upon his return to America, he worked at the Franklin Institute, obtained a master's of fine arts, became a documentarian, and skipping ahead a couple of years, uh, wrote this fantastic book, of which I have a copy right here, What's Gotten Into You? The story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. Dan, it's an absolute honor to have you on my little show. Thank you so much for uh, giving me that honor. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Of course. So, Dan, it's customary here on Finneran's Wake to begin our conversations with simple questions by which our rapport might be more quickly established and uh, any anxieties we bring with us in an instant painlessly relieved. To that end, I pose to you the following simple question with which, on a rhetorical note, you conclude your excellent book, What's Gotten Into You. Are our sensations solely a creation of chemical reactions, nanomachines, and the known forces of physics? Or is there more? Simply put, the question is, is there nothing more than the material world? Well, that's a... Uh... <laughs> Simple That's question. a matter of controversy. <laughs> <laughs> I personally uh, think that it is. 
that the material world is all that there is, but the material world is unbelievably complex. And the levels at which it operates are complex. However, there are very well-respected scientists and philosophers who uh, are dualists, who think that there may be something else in addition. And uh, so far, there certainly isn't a knockout punch uh, that will convince everybody of one position or another. Now, were you ever inclined toward the spiritual position or from a very young age, were you subscribing to the material view? You know, I've always been spiritual. Um, I think my spiritualism as I grew up, I really found much of it in nature. Uh, You know, when when I... uh, uh, was in in living in the Peace Corps in in Africa with the you know view of Mount Kilimanjaro, basically in front of me almost everywhere I went, uh, and you know seeing ant hills that are five feet long and all kinds of unbelievable animals because I lived very close to a game forest. Um, you know when you live in a place like that, you just realize how how enmeshed we are in a larger web of life and geology and, and, and the universe. And uh, I've always gotten a real spiritual sense from, uh, from, from experiencing that. And uh, that's also, I mean, in a sense, uh, one of the things that I got from writing this book was by peering back through the Big Bang and following the journeys of our atoms to us. Um, I also, at various times, you know, came away with a with a tremendous sense of awe, and gratitude and amazement uh, that we're here. Now, with the experience of that that awe, one can conceivably take one of two directions. One can be led into a more, um, I should say, theological. Perspective of life, or to a more materialistic perspective of life. It seems as though you chose the latter, seeing in nature its material beauty as opposed to um, attributing that to something higher and transcendent to nature. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that the universe was intelligently designed by some creator who's directing things along the way. Absolutely, but at the same time. Uh, you know, I certainly believe in justice and fairness and that it, you know, one should do the right thing. So I think uh, spiritualism and uh, materialism aren't necessarily um, at odds at all. That's who we are. No, yeah, not incompatible. And no, I don't mean to <laughs> to imply that you are uh, an immoral person or perhaps lacking in a, a good ethical <laughs> framework <laughs> that would make you a an acceptable member of our society. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that experience in Africa. So as I understand, upon your graduation from college, uh, you you obviously were adventurous to a certain extent, and you you sought out uh, a new experience on a faraway continent. What led you to to Africa, and what is the main lesson or lessons, the main lessons that you took away from that experience? 
Well, I went there because I wanted to experience the world in a different way and see the world through other people's eyes. And, and adventure was certainly part of it. Um, I, uh, uh, I certainly learned many lessons, uh, including that one can become used to almost anything with time and that, uh, um, uh, communities all over the world have very, very strong bonds that in some ways are independent of their material wealth. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing, as, as I mentioned, that I came away from, with it from is just a tremendous uh, respect for and interest in the natural world and how it works and, and how we came to be and how we're enmeshed in it. Hmm. Uh, so do you think you took more from the societal aspect, the societal cultural aspect, or from the the, na the natural uh, aspect? Oh, I think it would be equal. Huh. Very, very interesting. Uh, so you spent your time out in Africa, in Kenya, in these remote villages, uh, awakening to the sights of Kilimanjaro, uh, probably stumbling as you walked outside over these five-foot-tall uh, anthills. <laughs> and then you returned to America, and you pursued... Um, well, you pursued a position at the Franklin Institute. Maybe you can talk about that. What prompted you to seek a role there in that setting? And, and um, you know, what did you take away from that experience? Well, you know, I've always been interested in science and in the history of science and how we learned about things, not just what we knew. And uh, when I went there, I, I started out by developing the hands-on exhibits for things like mechanics that, that can allow people to uh, learn basic concepts experientially rather than reading about them. Uh, but then I ended up doing videotapes, video discs, actually, interactive uh, presentations about, uh, about the history of science. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I did things on the history of the electrification of... Uh, of America and on the history of, of aviation. And, and I, uh, I learned tremendous amount about the history of geology as well as I was developing an exhibit on geology. And that really, um, uh, that really solidified an interest that I always had, which was in the history of science. And, and so there's a way in which in writing this book, you know, I was able to return to that. And the, and the wonderful thing, one of the things that I just love about it is looking at discoveries back when we knew nothing and looking at the ways in which people set out to find one thing and find something completely different and 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 think about how discoveries would feel to people at the time you know one of the people that i wrote about write about in my book is jan ingenhaus who discovered photosynthesis so here was a guy who measured the gases coming off from plants using tubes and some, you know, today it would be quite crude uh, instruments because this was in like the 1780s or 1760s. And um, he was the first person to realize that plants take what he thought was called bad air, which we now know as carbon dioxide, and turn it into what he called good air, which we now know as oxygen. In other words, plants and photosynthesis completely transform our atmosphere. And they do it 
he was the one, because Joseph Priestley was also on that trail, but didn't put all the pieces together. Ingenhouse was the one who figured out that it would only happen in the presence of light. So, you know, imagine being in his shoes and realizing, oh my God, there's this invisible process going on all around us that completely transforms our world and we have no idea about. And being deemed uh, heretical at the same time, uh, because you're, you're trying to prove something at a time when you, like you said, you don't really quite have the instrumentation by which it can be measured. And you're trying to convince people of a, of a theory in which you completely believe because you perhaps both have the intuition that it's true and also have some of the empirical evidence to, to um, uh, support that intuition, but are yet unable to convince everybody. And uh, you brought up another name, Priestley, and that's one with which we're more um, familiar, uh, perhaps because we're in the Anglosphere, but I always find that to be interesting and probably demoralizing to the, to the memory of these unknown figures. Far fewer people know Ingenhouse's name and, than they do Priestley's name, the, the supposed discoverer of oxygen and a, a great scientist in his age. Um, can you maybe point to another uh, unheralded hero of the history of science uh, whom we should know much more about but don't? Well, there's so many of them, and that was the fun things about uh, about writing the book, because the book traces the history of our atoms from the Big Bang through the creation of elements and stars, through the creation of the solar system and Earth, the creation of life, and then how those elements got to us and make us. So it's the grand sweep, because every single particle in our body began 13.8 billion years ago from the Big Bang. Uh, but what's equally fascinating is that um, we are collections of those particles that sprang randomly out of the Big Bang. And then here we are actually looking back at our own history, you know, not just 100 years or 1,000 years, but, but millions and billions of years which is just remarkably profound. And so then the question is, you know, how could we possibly do that? And that's where the, the stories of the scientific discoveries come in because, you know, the clues were so unexpected and came from, from so many different places. And so many of the people who made uh, absolutely key discoveries are still very uh, little known. Uh, Ingenhouse is one of them because Priestley was at the time very famous and he claimed priority. He said, well, I discovered it independently of Ingenhouse at the same time. And Ingenhouse was little known. Priestley was very well known. Priestley's name went down in the history books. Yeah. Another uh, wonderful character, and there's so many of them, is uh, Cecilia Payne, who was a woman in the um, 1920s uh, who completely transformed our understanding of what stars are made of. Uh, because... She, I mean, she's fascinating uh, because she studied astronomy in England under some of the greatest minds at Cambridge. But as a woman, uh, she couldn't get a diploma even because Cambridge didn't even give women diplomas, although they allowed them to, to study there. She um, uh, was the only woman in her class. She had to sit in the front row by herself. Uh, you know, some of her teachers were very unhappy to see her there, while uh, you know a few others were were more welcoming. And she realized that when she was about to graduate, that uh, all she could hope for was essentially to become a, a schoolmistress in in England. So, 
So out of desperation, she found a fellowship. She was lucky enough to find a fellowship in, at Harvard. And at the time, uh, we knew what stars were made of. That is, we knew that they were made of many of the same elements as Earth, but we had no idea proportionally what, whether stars were made of, uh, of, of how much of one element versus how much of an element. Payne was the only one at Harvard at the time who was familiar with the, the, the very new theories uh, of, of quantum mechanics and was able to apply one of those theories that was proposed actually by a wonderful Indian uh, uh, scientist named Saha. And she applied it painstakingly to photographic plates, thousands of photographic plates at Harvard, and ultimately discovered something that her professors at Cambridge, you know, were quite skeptical of, and that they called her very brave for suggesting this, which was that the Earth, uh, I'm sorry, rather stars, are 98% hydrogen and helium, and, and over 70% just hydrogen. At the time, people were sure, for many good reasons, that, that stars were made of exactly the same composition as Earth. That is, I mean, they thought that the stars, like our sun, had a huge iron core, just like Earth did. Payne was able to show that that's not the case at all, that stars are 98% hydrogen and helium. And um, uh, one of the most distinguished uh, stellar astronomers in the, in, in the world told her that her thesis, which also covered other, other topics, was brilliant, but that particular conclusion was absolutely had to be wrong. So in her thesis, she, um, uh, she said, well, this particular finding is, is almost certainly wrong. That's what she wrote. Hmm. Several years later, through other, me, uh, through other avenues of, of applying quantum uh, uh, physics, uh, uh, this uh, astronomer actually realized, oh, Cecilia Payne was right. So he published an article in which he gave all the other reasons that this was right. And, said, and by the way, this nicely agrees with what Cecilia Payne uh, discovered. So um, she, um, in fact, she was called by, by, by um, uh, some one astronomer at, in, in California, the best man at Harvard. <laughs> I was just about, just about to ask uh, you that. I, was it Hubble? Someone bestowed upon her that, that uh, darling epithet of the best man at Harvard and quite, uh, quite a deserving nickname and uh, one that she certainly, I'm sure, proudly wore after having been dismissed, not dismissed, but um, sort of marginalized at her universities in, in Great Britain. <laughs> Yeah, well, she was, you know, it was in, in she was, um, it, it, she was dismissed. I mean, that finding was dismissed when she was in the United States at, at Harvard. Mm. Um, but yeah, there is a, a nice addendum to that story, which is she was allowed to teach. The president of Harvard swore that she would never become a professor as long as he was alive. Right. When he died, ultimately, she did become a professor and ultimately rose to be chair of the department and was was quite celebrated. But throughout her life, she really faced tremendous amount of of, of sexism and obstacles. But she, you know, she was uh, she was absolutely brilliant. Her PhD thesis was considered one of the brilliant in astronomy ever written, and uh, you know, not enough people know about her. And there there are many other stories like that that I discovered as I was following the 
the, uh, the, the journey of our atoms. Yeah, and that's what makes your work especially interesting. And as I said earlier, in relation to the other works that you've that you've done, engrossing, because this isn't a um, a sterile look at chemicals strictly. You're looking at characters as well, and there are so many. It's almost overpopulated with all these um, fascinating people about whom you just want, as the reader, you just want to learn more. Um, be it Lemaitre or Hoyle or, um, you know, uh, you, you, you know, so many others. Rosalind Franklin, for instance. Now, she, I think, uh, has always had a, a, a spot of affection in my heart. I've always thought very highly of Rosalind Franklin. And, of course, she was associated with the famed duo of Francis and Crick. But, but maybe that duo wasn't so strong without the likes of, of Franklin. Maybe you can talk about Franklin a little bit. Another lesser known but integral female figure who who helped not the development of astronomy but of um, biochemistry of the 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 um, visualization of our dna yeah what she and watson and crick discovered was the structure of dna and watson and crick of course as everybody knows wrote the paper in 1953 that announced its structure and for years and years, uh, few people knew about Franklin. But it turns out the work that she did was absolutely integral to their work because she came to uh, London and, and, and the study of the structure of DNA at a time when she had just about the only uh, uh, laboratory in the country that was using X-ray X crystallography to, to, to try to uncover the structure of DNA. And she uh, was an extremely skilled and patient experimentalist. And she came up with photo 51 is, is famed as one of the most crystal clear images of the structure of DNA, which doesn't, by the way, reveal the structure when you look at it, uh, ex except it reveals some aspects of it, and then particularly that the, that the DNA was a helix. If you knew enough about uh, X-ray crystallography and the mathematics of it, mathematics of it to to unpack that, uh, and so she not so she made brilliant images, and she found uh, great, and, and she made many precise measurements from them. Watson and Crick never did an experiment related to DNA. What they did was they took uh, data from Rosalind Franklin, uh, which was kind of slipped them uh, a little bit on the sly. Um, and they also used very, very clever modeling and thinking of their own by creating a almost like a tinker toy model of the various subgroups of DNA. And they experimented with trying to figure out how to put them together in order to come up with DNA's structure, which we now know to be a double helix. But without Franklin's uh, work, uh, they couldn't possibly have done what they did. And, and, and unfortunately, um, when their paper came out and even later, later, they never really gave her the credit that they deserved. And that was a, a tremendous ethical oversight. Yeah, and posthumously, I think we've done well to recognize her contribution, but certainly during her life, uh, it went unrecognized. Let me ask you, if, 
you could choose a position, would you prefer to be someone who perhaps made or contributed to a great discovery and was integral to that, but was forever to be unknown in having contributed? Or would you prefer to be like Watson and Crick, uh, a duo almost immortal, uh, gracing every biology textbook, um, but perhaps maybe a little bit less deserving of that renown and that fame? Well, that's an interesting question and a difficult one to answer. Um, you know, uh, there are, you know, there is a tremendous, um, tremendous satisfaction in being the first to appreciate something and to understand something when nobody else in the world knows about it. And that's one of the great drivers of science is that, that feeling that many scientists experience that's just tremendously uh, profound for many people. On the other hand, uh, you know, over and over again in my book, you know, there were many people who came up with the discovery and then someone else claimed credit. And it wasn't just Rosalind Franklin and it wasn't just uh, Ingenhaus. Uh, you know, there were, there, were, there were many, many others. And, you know, we are, um, we are social animals and deep down uh, what other people think of us and, and, and how other people assess us in a sense, it's something that's very integral to our own self-image. So it, it can be very embittering to, as Ingenhaus experienced, to um, have made a tremendous discovery and then uh, have somebody else take yeah. the credit for it. And so I, would I want to put myself through that? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I would. So you would prefer to, to, uh, to take all the glory and the honor and perhaps contribute less? <laughs> well, well, that's, I'm not sure. I, I, I just, Those were the options. <laughs> they're good times, Steve. They're advantages to both. <laughs> no, but I, I, I jest. And you're absolutely right. Um, these are people like anyone else who are seeking in, to some extent honor and glory. And, uh, you know, we like to think that one pursues science or the, the, the field of, you know, of which he's a specialist strictly for the pure enjoyment of that, of that study, of that pursuit. But I mean, we're all fundamentally motivated by similar things. And part of that is to, to leave a legacy, whether it be an intellectual legacy or, or some other artistic legacy, but you want to leave something behind. You want to achieve something great. And I think Scientists especially are motivated by that, just as athletes are and artists are, whether it be selling albums or winning championships or you know, scoring a certain amount of points. That motivation, I think, is, is nearly a universal one, whether you're a female or a male or what have you. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think that you know, in these races to discover a certain thing, um, those motivations are at play. I'm reminded of the, you know, in, in calculus, you were looking at uh, Newton and Leibniz, and uh, you know, that was a, 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 mm -hmm. also an, uh, a continental um, uh, race toward a, toward a great mathematical discovery. And you know, Newton is now crowned with having discovered it, but they were basically contemporaneous and almost simultaneous, almost as though uh, they, it was like a tie going to the runner at, at first base in a baseball game. And you do a very good job in your book of, of peeling back certain layers and looking at 
who exactly should be credited with having um, suggested a certain theory, maybe before its most popular uh, champion, let's say, who who is ultimately given much more credit. I want to turn very quickly to someone to whom we do give a lot of credit, and, and that is Benjamin Franklin. Now, of course, I noted that you worked at the Benj uh, I'm sorry, at the Franklin Institute, um, sort of at which your scientific and artistic, I think, passions really started to flourish. I couldn't help notice that you and Benjamin Franklin share a few similarities. I have to ask, is he a founding father uh, for whom you have an especially large amount of affection? <laughs> I, I do have a tremendous amount of admiration for him. He was, uh, um, I, I, I can't compare myself to Benjamin Franklin at well, all. Let me, and let Franklin me... was a, a polymath who was an unbelievable writer. He was an unbelievable inventor. He was an unbelievable politician. And he was key to a lot of scientific discovery at the time. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure you picked up that Franklin was a very, very minor character in my book uh, because he was great friends with uh, Ingenhouse, who was the discoverer of photosynthesis. In fact, uh, Ingenhaus met Franklin uh, when they were working on smallpox vaccinations uh, in, in, in England. And Ingenhaus was also experimenting with electricity inspired by Franklin. And funny story, they exchanged um, accounts of experimenting with electricity and accidentally having such a strong volt of electricity that it knocked them out. <laughs> which, which uh, you know, which actually Ingenhaus uh, wrote to Franklin that um, he woke up feeling absolutely clear-headed, <laughs> which is which uh, is why he suggested to doctors that they might try this for mentally ill patients, and in fact, electrical stimulation for depression is something that we use today. But uh, uh, but Franklin was just so important on so many different levels in, in investigating the, the questions of his time. So he's absolutely a fascinating figure. I thought he might be in, in your life. Uh, the parallels that I draw are, are these. He was, of course, a son of Boston. He moved to Philadelphia at a young age. He was a popularizer of scientific theories. He was, of course, insatiably scientifically curious. You, as far as I understand, based on your history, uh, are from Pennsylvania, perhaps from Philadelphia, am I wrong? Philadelphia, yeah. You're from Philadelphia. You now reside in Boston, kind of a reverse of the Franklin movement to these two grand cities of ours. Um, so, and you of course worked at his institute. I don't know if you have any plans for political office. I think that would even though Franklin, I don't, well, aside from you know, the Continental Congress, I don't know if he was ever elected to anything beyond that, but um, I, I, I thought these connections were perhaps meaningful. Maybe I'm wrong, though. <laughs> well, God forbid I should compare myself to Franklin, but um, thank you for that. Of course. I couldn't not mention it. I thought that it was um, too interesting to, to overlook. Now, I mentioned the two the two components of your of your work and of your history that i think have produced 
such a capable ability to to speak to the public about these matters, and that is the scientific and the artistic. Um, of course, you you mentioned that you were deeply interested in chemistry. I think you received your first chemistry set at the tender age of seven. Uh, you've ever since that time, I think, maintained and nourished a, a strong affinity for science. Um, and then the artistic side, you returned from Africa and you pursued an MFA, a Master's of Fine Art, and became a documentarian. So can you tell us a little bit more about this balance in your life between the scientific and the artistic? I would ask you, of what matter, <laughs> scientific or artistic, are you predominantly composed? 50-50. Yeah. <laughs> <A laughs> perfect Maybe equal 50-50. Yeah, although I'm not sure which which way I would have to go there, but no, it's 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 true that um, when I made documentary films, the aesthetics was always a very very strong factor. But but you know, I would say even more so. You know, what I've always loved to do is to um, learn about something and then explain it in a way that's enjoyable for the listener or in this case now the reader and that's what i did with my documentary films this is is i would learn about you know the archaeology of custer's last stand or the lives of great physicists and then figure out how to make an engaging film about it and and, and you know equally writing gives me the same pleasure in trying to really get to the crux of you know what is it about this story that makes it so engrossing and how do I communicate to that, that to people, uh, including those who may know very little about science? I've, I love that challenge. Yeah, and I think you succeed at that because so often these works, even popular works of science, can be so barren and tedious and difficult for the layperson like myself. And we are inherently, I think, narrative-seeking uh, beings, organisms, if you will. We need a story. Uh, and that's why your presentation of all these fascinating characters with the uh, discovery of their molecules and their um, their theories and all such things is what makes it um, so vital a read, I think, at this point in time. Uh, let me ask you, as a director, uh, no matter the genre in which you're working, as you say, you're always looking for a certain aesthetic effect now, less doubtless as a documentarian of science than uh, as the director of a Meryl Streep film, for instance. But drama is still going to be central to uh, the medium of motion pictures, uh, of which you are a creator. So walk with me, if you will, into this hypothetical. I think you'll enjoy it. Suppose you were on set 13.8 billion years ago as the Big Bang was getting underway, your job is not so much to direct the events to come, but to provide a score to this grand cosmic eruption. If you could set a song to the instant that the Big Bang occurred, what song would you play? Oh, wow. It would have to be some unbelievable uh, classical score that just rose and rose and rose. Just a, just a internal thing <laughs> much bigger and uh, 
than we can possibly comprehend, you know, in, in milliseconds, antimatter and, and matter came out. And then, 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 you know, all the subparticles that then uh, created protons and, and, and neutrons and electrons, which would become the matter that we are made of. And the universe was literally expanding. And it began with a hot plasma that was, you know, so hot that no light could escape. And it took a while for particles to form. I mean, we can't, it, we can't really comprehend how dramatic that was. And so the score would just have to be out of sight. Give me an example. What would you what would you want to hear at that moment? Carmina Burana. <laughs> That's an excellent excellent choice. Excellent choice. That's actually on my. I have a uh, a playlist for when I go to the gym. I call it Promethean Pump. It's it's all just classical. <laughs> and that <laughs> I try to work. I try to work up to that to that song anytime I'm at my heaviest uh, set. And it never fails me. I'm always uh, lifting extraordinary amounts of weight once uh, that's going through my ears. My selection, I was thinking of good, of great classical works. Of course, uh, Strauss's Thus Sprach Zarathustra suggested itself to me. The, but, you know, I thought maybe that's a little too uh, overused after uh, space, 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> uh, so right. so I, I, um, I chose Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. And uh -huh. just that, just that introduction, just keep that introduction rolling as the, as the, the <laughs> as all the cosmic radiation pours out into the, into the young universe. Yeah. But you, you know, you, uh, the, um, the drama that I'm attracted to in, is the drama of science, scientific discovery, not just what we know, but how we know it. And, you know, a large reason why we don't, get this is because scientists are trained to say just the facts, right? You publish a scientific paper and you don't talk about your heartbreak, all the difficulties you had, all the false turns or the way in which you were competing with somebody else or somebody stole something from you or, or you stole something from somebody else, right? That's, you don't talk about any of that. All you say is, oh yeah, we found um, that, uh, you know, the universe came out of a, of a, of a uh, uh, a singularity out of out of, out of a tiny point of time and space, or um, uh, well, sure, that in the vacuum of space, particles spring out and then annihilate each other and disappear again. So space is not even empty, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, the moon was formed when a Mars-sized body slammed into Earth and uh, eviscerated Earth, completely melted it down. And that's how the moon was born. And what they don't tell you, right, is um, all the work that went into it, and 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 as well the you know the feelings of uh, of disappointment, vindication, triumph, uh, competition that they feel it's all there, right? It's there in the science. It's just that scientists aren't trained or rewarded for telling the stories in that way, and th and that's why we need. Um, storytellers to help them do it. Precisely why we have you and we thank you for your efforts. You're doing uh, precisely what we need to be able to thoroughly enjoy these things. Because like I said, fundamentally, yes, we, we are seeking empirical data or datum, 
um, to be able to uh, operate in the physical world and to be able to understand it more thoroughly. But we also are fundamentally narrative, story, drama-seeking in individuals, humans. Right. And so without that, that barrenness of the pure empirical, isn't, it's not meaningless to us, but it certainly doesn't touch us the way that it, that it might otherwise. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we talked repeatedly about, about the Big Bang. And that's a topic on, about which we could talk endlessly. Uh, now, it's often said, and correctly, I think, that the two pillars upon which Western civilization uh, is built are the Jerusalem and, and Athens, so mm -hmm. Judeo-Christian religion and Greek philosophy. And much as they join together in supporting this firm foundation, their cosmologies differ to a point of irreconcilability. And I've always found this fascinating. Uh, take, for instance, the very poetic description of creation in Genesis, which basically communicates the idea of the Big Bang. It's, it's creation or creatio ex nihilo, out of nothing. And then you take one of the exemplary figures of Greek philosophy, Aristotle, who also believed in a divine being, but he maintained the theory of an everlasting universe without creation, without end. And I found it so fascinating to think that thousands of years later, as you describe in your book, you have a figure like Georges Lemaitre, the cleric, mathematician, physicist, basically, with some refinements, advancing the ex nihilo position. And his adversary, I suppose you could call him, Hoyle, was it? The, the British um, astronomer and physicist, adhering to the Aristotelian view, whether he acknowledged this as the byproduct of Aristotle or not. And that is the idea that the universe is everlasting, without end, without beginning. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit, this, oh, I don't know, ongoing transgenerational um, tension between these two sides, between the Lemaitre biblical Jerusalem side and the, the Hoyle um, Athenian Aristotelian side in their attempts to understand the beginning or the creation of the universe? Well, you know, um, Lemaitre's first nemesis was Albert Einstein. Ah. Ah. It, uh, it, it's a fascinating story because Lemaitre proved Einstein wrong because Einstein believed what initially what Hoyle, Fred Hoyle believed and uh, many, many other people would assume, which is that the universe was always here and was always static in a sense. I mean, why would you, why would you possibly think otherwise? What changed were Einstein's equations of general relativity uh, and which, which suggested that the universe actually could be expanding and Lemaitre found heard of hazy evidence in the 1920s that galaxies further away from us were 
accelerating further from Earth faster than galaxies closer to us. And he, he uh, inferred from that that the universe itself was expanding. So he presented this idea to Einstein, and Einstein hated it. I mean, how is it possible that the universe is actually expanding? What's it expanding into? I, nobody can answer that question, right? I mean, no one still can answer that question. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. And theories about the universe, we think, should make sense. Lemaitre went and dove further into Einstein's theory and um, uh, reasoning that if the universe is expanding, it was smaller before that, smaller before that. And ultimately, if every point in the universe and every bit of matter sprang out of a teeny tiny point of space and time in the Big Bang. Einstein hated the idea in part because he thought, as you suggested, that, that it reeked of a religiosity, right? Yeah. That, that Lemaitre in some way was trying to, um, uh, to show that the truth of Genesis. Yeah, yeah. Now, interesting, there's an interesting footnote to that, which was earlier in his life, Lemaitre actually did try to literally show that the universe came from light. And he realized in graduate school that that wasn't going to work. But he was more open than Einstein to looking at the implications of Einstein's theory and um, considering the possibility that the universe did expand from a teeny tiny point of time and space. And um, what changed things, though, was the evidence. Einstein ultimately looked at the evidence from Hubble, who, who, who came up with better defined observations, and and there were other things that made Einstein ultimately, after consulting with many people, change his mind. Now, Fred Hoyle is fascinating because Hoyle, who was a, one of the most brilliant physicists of the 20th century, and also one of the most contrarian, right? And like Einstein, wanted to construct things from first principles himself. To him, again, the idea of the Big Bang just seemed ridiculous. Right. In fact, he was the one who coined the term the Big Bang because he said, well, you know what, this other thing, of course, the universe has always existed. I mean, otherwise, what do you think? It just came from a Big Bang, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? which was which was presumably a derogatory term. This yeah. And in that moment of disparagement, this wonderful term was born out of that moment of disparagement. Uh, and so we have him to thank for that. <laughs> A absolutely. But, you know, Hoyle uh, spent a lot of time trying to come up with evidence for a contrary theory, which is that the universe always existed. And um, uh, there was a long time in which the jury was out. And there were great debates between Hoyle and others ab about whether the Big Bang was real or his theory called the steady state theory existed. And Ultimately, um, what made the difference was a discovery in 1963 of the cosmic background radiation, which was proof that there was radiation that went all the way back to the beginning of the universe that we could still detect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, without that, you know, of course, we'd still be debating 
about it. But in the end, the, the evidence for the Big Bang and for Einstein's theories of uh, general relativity is very, very strong. There have been many, many tests of it. So ultimately, the evidence has won out. But when Einstein first thought about this, his reaction was, that's too weird to be true, right? It couldn't, Mother Nature would never do that. That's, he, he literally told Lemaitre, he said, your physics is good, but your physical intuition is atrocious because this, this is ridiculous. There's no way that that could be true. And, and that's one of the interesting things that I found in my book, that again and again, things that we thought were too insane to be true turned out to be true. And that's one of the wonderful things about the natural world and the universe that we live in. Yes. And it's not as though Einstein was untouched by a spiritualism of sorts. I think he would have identified himself as a deist. Uh, but I, I find that episode so fascinating. And this is among many fascinating episodes from which one can choose. Because here you have Lemaitre, who's probably, oh, I don't know, uh, looked at suspiciously by a lot of members of the scientific community for having been raised in the church to a certain extent <laughs> and then pursued science um, professionally as well in England. And now you have this guy putting forth a theory that just reeks of, of uh, religiosity, a religious quality. And like Hoyle, you would be tempted to reject it out of hand. And also the, the mere concept, if you're not a subscriber to the biblical story of Genesis, that all that we see around us and all that we are began from a moment in time or out of time <laughs> or with time from a very almost infinitesimally small density of matter is, like you said, um, almost unthinkable, almost incomprehensible. It really does bewilder and, and um, perplex the mind. So I think it's really noble, or it was very noble of Einstein, uh, whom we think was completely omniscient and infallible, at least lay people do, using his name as a synonym for perfect genius, to have, ex to have expressed such humility. He, I mean, he, he acknowledged uh, his errors, the errors of his ways and his calculations. I, I have written down that very quote that you said. He says, your calculations are correct, conceding that, the mathematical point, but your physical insight is abominable. Well, what exactly is the physical insight if your calculations are correct? What does that matter? <laughs> and speaking of calculations, as you write in your book, and I was unaware of this, Einstein used his cosmological constant uh, this was his, as you say, his fudge factor, which enabled him uh, somewhat conveniently to, to, to get at the right answers of, uh, that he was seeking. Um, so again, it, it speaks to your book. It speaks to this fascinating interplay between these two or three brilliant scientists um, in different stages of spiritual belief. And I also find that interesting. Lemaitre, a, a devout Christian, Einstein, um, somewhat curious deist, and then Hoyle, a, a, an affirmed atheist, 
all kind of taking different paths and arriving at different places <laughs> through the course of their journeys. Um, so that story, I think, is wonderfully told in your book and really, truly uh, fascinating me. Maybe you can give some some final final remarks on that. Yeah, well, I mean, mind you, Lemaitre was not just religious. He uh, he was a, a very devout priest who joined a fellowship of priests, and he remained part of that fellowship for his entire life. He he yearly every year he went to their annual meeting. So he he was extremely devout. But he was also, even in the early days, he was brilliant and he was well respected uh, as a mathematician, as, as, as a scientist. And um, he, um, uh, Einstein didn't have any choice. I mean, you can call Einstein noble. And I mean, there were people like Fred Hoyle who, who just wouldn't accept the theory. But, but Einstein really didn't have that much choice he i mean he he looked at the evidence he talked to a lot of people and uh you know that's what in the end makes the difference in science is 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 the evidence you know and and again again when when people come up with these crazy ideas that we reject in a knee-jerk fashion is that that couldn't possibly be true in the end which brings what brings people around uh is the is the evidence and 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 the matrix is also interesting of course because um he was he was allowed by his cardinal to go to cambridge to study to study relativity and um he was um uh asked how do you reconcile your religion with your science and what he told an interviewer from the new york times was that science and religion are two paths to truth Science tells us about the natural world. Religion tells us about salvation. And there's nothing incompatible about them. Tell me, how would you respond to his answer? Now, I, I ask that because I'm, I'm reminded of the famous idea put forward by the American paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould a term that has stuck with me. I think I learned it at a young age and didn't quite understand it. <laughs> but for whatever reason, it stuck with me. And, and he promulgated the idea of uh, non-overlapping magisteria in describing religion and science. He said that they are basically exclusive to each other. And as his term indicates, do not overlap. And I was much taken by that idea. Uh, through my process of maturation, both chronologically and intellectually, I think that I've since moved away from from his sort of dichotomous view. But what do you think about those two positions? Let's say that the Lemaitre position is the one in which these two fields can point to truth, perhaps via different roots, but they do have some uh, overlapping in the Gouldian <laughs> position, which states, no, no, these are these are two exclusive, irreconcilable domains? Well, I think the answer is um, we're never going to find evidence that's going to prove one or the other. Uh, so, I mean, what do I think personally? I personally don't believe in an omnipotent God who has, you know, who's behind the veil of, 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 
the, of the Big Bang. But at the same time, you know, I think that given what we know about the universe and given what we don't know, um, people who like Lemaitre are devoutly religious of whatever religion, uh, but also uh, can also find a way to believe in science because, you know, I completely agree with Lemaitre that, you know, we don't look to scripture to tell us how, how volcanoes work, how the earth was formed. Uh, but uh, there are other things that people do look to scriptures for, and um, that's a perfectly legitimate, uh, fundamental belief. I agree. Uh, you used a term, behind the veil of the Big Bang. It would be certainly convenient uh, were there to be a, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent God there <laughs> pulling the strings and setting everything in motion. Uh, but... I'm going to ask you the unanswerable question. <laughs> to your fancy, what do you think preceded the Big Bang? There, I don't have a lot of opinions. I, I, I you know, I, and I, that's strictly what I want. I want an opinion. Just a, <laughs> it can be a dramatic one, <laughs> a scientifically inclined one. Well, you know, I, I'm sh I, I'm sure you know that there are some people who think that the universe began in a Big Bang, expanded, and then gravity pulled it back again into a tiny point again and then it expands so it's a yo-yo universe the, yeah, the or the oscillating yes so we should say that there are uh, i don't know if r is the right word uh, there there have been three competing theories about the creation and the per perpetuation of the universe like you said the big bang which is generally accepted. The steady state, that's the Aristotelian, and the oscillating or the yo-yo type universe that you're describing. So go on with that one. Uh, I, and I don't think the steady state is one that many people, um, although you never know. I mean, somebody come up, could come up with them, but that's not one of the leading contenders now. But the other um, uh, very prevalent theory among physicists is many people think that we live in a multiverse and that there are I don't know if it's an infinitude or many, many different universes. Perhaps some of them have completely different physical constants and ours just happen to be tuned in a way that life was created and, and others might have different kinds of life or no life at all. Um, I don't think that my mind can really get behind any of those because I don't have enough evidence. I, I have no idea. Uh, I join. I join. You. I, uh, you know, it's uh, it's certainly possible, but I don't have a gut feeling about it because it's so beyond my intuition. And I join you in that um, that incomprehension and that ignorance. To me, and perhaps I just have a, haven't a sufficiently sophisticated mind. That certainly is could be the case, <laughs> but I just have no way of even conceiving of of a of a multiverse type setting uh, in which. Uh, you know, multiple ongoing or, or uh, you know, uh, universes are, are existing. It's difficult for me even to begin to explain how that would, that would take place. Uh, is there any uh, popular expositor of science whom you follow who is working in that, in that area that we should maybe pay more attention to? Well, the physicist Sean Carroll is, is, is a, uh, a uh, wonderful writer, in, and he's written a lot about uh, those things, among others. So he's certainly one of them. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I just love 
in researching the book was in discovering so many things that scientists never dreamed of and that seemed completely impossible. And of course, the Big Bang and the idea of the multiverse is one of them. Uh, you know, on the other side, um, uh, the mitochondria, which are the little energy factories in our cells, the idea that they were created because there was once a bacteria swimming around in the ocean that was particularly good at creating energy and another single cell organism engulfed it and instead of digesting it, mitochondria uh, uh, found an accommodation and ultimately, uh, the, the bacteria ultimately evolved into mitochondria. I mean, geneticists once thought that's ridiculous, completely impossible. How could you even think such a thing? And so Lynn Margulis, who was the wonderful microbiologist who championed that theory for many, many years was, was out in the wilderness because people, I mean, people ridiculed her people. She was, she was treated as a bit of a, of, of a uh, uh, with, with scorn into a certain extent until um, with gene sequencing, we were actually able to compare the DNA of bacteria with the DNA. It turns out that mitochondria have some DNA of their own. And lo and behold, they share some very deep similarities. And in the same way, um, Albert Claude, who was a, at, uh, in the 1920s, who was a medical researcher, was sure that there must be structures inside the cell that we couldn't envision. Because at the time in the 1920s, if you looked with a microscope at a cell, you saw a nucleus, you saw something called a mitochondria. We didn't know what it was. There was debate about whether there was a Golgi body, and that was it. But scientists were sure that they knew what was in the cell. In the cytoplasm, they were sure that all that was there was a soup of enzymes, because enzymes are the, mo the molecules that accelerate, that catalyze chemical reactions. So you can have a reaction that could take a million years. And with an enzyme, that can happen many times a second. So they were sure that that's all there was in the cell. That the, and, and Claude, by using some both innovative and techniques that were completely scorned, uh, uh, he discovered that there are all kinds of structures in our cell that nobody ever dreamed of. So, you know, again and again, uh, you know, scientists have found that things that seemed absolutely ludicrous turn out to be uh, turn out to be true. And that, and that was one of the wonderful things about tracing the, uh, the journeys of our atoms was seeing how many times it was that scientists' expectations of what could be were completely overturned. Yeah, uh, the example of the mitochondria I always find to be fascinating. Uh, prevalent among scientists, as you describe in your book, was the idea that there was more ruthlessness, let's say, in, in nature, being red in tooth and claw, and that this idea that there was more of a symbiotic joining of these two disparate elements was unthinkable. The fact that, you know, our eukaryotic cells somehow absorbed these bacterial cells and, and worked together in such a way as to create this powerhouse, the battery of the cell on, on which we all operate. <laughs> it was, again, unthinkable. And, and that's what I find most exciting about the scientific process. I mentioned earlier the nobility of Einstein. Perhaps the word isn't 
isn't exactly right. And, and you pointed that out, but I found it refreshing to know that a man of his stature and of his genius was humble enough to revisit his calculations and point out, okay, this was a great blunder of mine that obviously I needed to address his cosmological constant, for instance. And I say it's refreshing because in the current age, it feels as though the scientific community has become a little bit maybe full of itself, a little too pompous. And to use a recent example, and I say this not with the purpose of being controversial in any way, um, but when you look at the, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems as though there was a, a great sense of incuriosity amongst a lot of our leading medical and scientific professionals, really objectively, without any influence of politics or ideology, to get right down to the source. Okay, precisely what happened, right? Unblemished by any sort of other interests. Let's just look at the facts. And it, of course, as you know, became hyper-politicized uh, and remains such to this day. So I just wanted to, to expand on that a little bit because I've been lately disappointed, I think, by, by the scientific community and the way in which they've handled not only that crisis, but others. Um, you know, I wouldn't agree with your characterization of the the scientific response to mm -hmm. COVID. Um, I, I think that uh, it very quickly became politicized. Scientists are bad at communicating, and the CDC, who was charged with communicating the message, was there was all kinds of political interference and pressure put on them, and they all also legitimately made many mistakes in communication. And there were so many unknown questions, but. But, um, you know, when, when you're faced with something that you have no explanation for, you try to come up with as many theories as you can, and you try to run them down as fast as you can. And, and that's what scientists did. And, you know, to the extent that there were people who maybe were less interested, uh, as you put it, I think that was a very, very, very small minority. I mean, I think actually the opposite was the case, that there were all kinds of people who completely abandoned the other research that they were doing to dive into trying to understand uh, uh, COVID and the nature of COVID and the nature of threat that, 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 that COVID presents. So I really think the, um, all the smoke and confusion about it really had to do more with, with the politicized debate and the poor communication than about that genuine uh, uh, reality of the scientific community's response to it. Hmm. It does seem to be the case that there was uh, great reluctance on the part of our uh, leaders, at least our governmental leaders in the scientific community, even to entertain the prospect that the, the pathogen came from a laboratory in Wuhan, which seems to be the direction in, toward which a lot of um, people are pointing now. Um, so. Yes, of course, there was a, a, a long duration of time when we simply did not know, and it would have been hasty and perhaps dangerous to, uh, to jump was, in. That's such a political issue. 
I mean, and that's the explanation, right? I mean, it's so political. It has to do with geopolitical politics. Who was president at the time? Uh, you know, the the the, the um, uh, political uh, realities of, of of what the researchers in China, you know, uh, under that particular authoritarian regime, you know, are are subject to. It's not science unfettered and objective, right? <laughs> so right, right, so and it, that's you know, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I mean, it was very adulterated by so many other concerns. And I don't mean to make this a political conversation, not far from it. Although I am curious to know if really you're going to follow in the Benjamin Franklin way and perhaps uh, take this as your launching pad to, to, to think more about politics. <laughs> but no, um, I, I guess because of what you're saying, you know, all these other political concerns, we, let's say in the scientific community, we're unable, I think, absolutely empirically to to look at this disease and really to get to the bottom of it in the way that one would want a, a scientific, um, well, study to be performed or an examination to be performed. Um, you know, and there are of course many reasons for that. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just, it's just so political, but you know, as I said, the, um, the, the, one of the things that I found emerging from my book, which is absolutely fascinating, is that all of us are full of cognitive biases. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that affect how we assess things. And, and in fact, I, there's certain ones that came up in my book that were so common that I gave them nicknames, like the too weird to be true bias, yeah. or if our current tools can't detect it, it must not exist, which is what Bernard uh, which is what Claude faced when scientists were sure that there couldn't be anything more complex in the cell, or the um, uh, uh, as an expert, I've lost sight of how much is still unknown. Which is, you know, what what uh, Charles Towns faced when he was suggesting to people that there could be organic molecules floating in space, and people said there's no way because they would be destroyed by cosmic rays and, and uh, particles uh, um, running around, you know, uh, racing around there. And they were right that small collections of organic molecules, which are long carbon chains, couldn't exist there because they're so delicate. But they never uh, uh, considered the possibility that there could be huge clouds, molecular clouds of them. And so the, the molecules on the outside would protect those on the inside from destruction. So there's, so, uh, uh, and of course, uh, um, there's confirmation bias, which is, you know, you look for and expect uh, ev to find evidence that confirms the theory that you already have. All of these things are, are part of human nature. And um, they're, they're part of the way our mind works. Uh, I, I think and, and not just scientists, but all of us. Yeah, it, precisely. And I think this is the point that I'm inelegantly trying to make. In your story, in your book, you talk about a lot of scientists who were able to overcome these biases. Of course, these biases uh, are universal to us all. You can be the most brilliant uh, you know, uh, geophysicist that's ever lived and still be hampered by these biases. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it feels as though, and perhaps I'm wrong, but it feels as though there was a, a certain golden age of, of science, if I can describe it as that. And, and that's the Lemaitre, Einstein, Hoyle type age. Perhaps I'm wrong, but 
it felt like that. And when I read your book, it felt like that was a time when really there was a certain humility. Of course, we talked about the, the pursuit of honor and glory and these certain things um, by which we're all inspired. But there was also a willingness to acknowledge um, error. And I know I don't speak for the scientific, uh, scientific community as it exists today. But just as, a, as an observer and an auditor of that community, as it presents itself to us and has for the past couple of years during this uh, pandemic, it just seems as though a little bit of that ability to overcome these biases has been lost. I think that's really what I'm trying to say. And there was a certain nostalgia that I felt. That's probably not something that you've heard after reading your book. <laughs> a certain nostalgia for this bygone era of great science that was being performed and researched. Now I'm sure during that during that time it probably wasn't so golden. I'm sure there was a uh, you know during the the rise of the Nazi regime and the Soviets and we had you know, so many other political factors. I'm sure influenced science at that age as well. But um, yeah, I was struck by that. I, you know, I, I I took a bit of a different lesson from the history because um, you know what I what I discovered was that again and again biases got in the way of great discoveries and you know there was there's a philosopher of science who once said when you have great paradigm shifts that often you have to wait till the old scientists die out in order for people to accept the new theories that's not what i saw in the examples uh, that I wrote about, that, that I looked at in the book. Instead, what I found was that uh, there were often times when whole communities of scientists were convinced that something was completely impossible and couldn't, couldn't possibly exist. But in the end, they kept going back and looking at the evidence and looking at the evidence, and they remained open to the evidence. And ultimately, in the case of the Big Bang, in the case of the origin of mitochondria, in the case of the different structures inside their cells, in the case of, of organic molecules in space, in the case of, you know, what, what the sun is, uh, what, what the sun stars are made of, and so on. Ultimately, even when whole communities of scientists were thought this is ridiculous, they came around. And it wasn't generally because people died, it's because they listened to the argument and new evidence came along just like in the steady state theory versus the big bang it was the new evidence of the cosmic background radiation that all of a sudden changed the picture for everybody and and i think that's equally true today that um you know in the short term and remember covid is not very covid's not been around for a long time at all right in the short term I think we do see that often scientists, whether on the granting committees or otherwise, you know, say, no, that's impossible and write things off. But, but in the longer terms, and the longer term might be five years, 10 years, or 30 years, but it doesn't have to be a lifetime, scientists do come around to respecting the evidence and the theories that support them. And, and that's really why, you know, we can say that science is getting closer to the truth because that scientists, that's the, the strength of science, is that ultimately 
the evidence wins. Maybe not overnight, but in the end, it does win because scientists are, despite their competitive streaks and their hope for glory and you know all these other human characteristics that we all have, you know, they all do want to ultimately understand what is. And they're willing to, in the end, accept the evidence, at least the general community of is over time, not that every particular individual is, but in the end, that's the trend that we see. And that's equally true now and, and, and in the past. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that in the past there were more people who were open to evidence than, than now, because I think people have always had these blinders. Yeah. 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 In fact, it was probably just the opposite. That, that was such an extraordinary expl uh, explanation. I thank you for that. I'm certainly much more encouraged now having listened to that uh, than I was previously. And I'll have to think about that a little bit more. Your optimism, your enthusiasm is infectious. And again, something very intimately felt through the, through the words of your book. So we just covered a couple of heavier topics and I know time is running a little bit short. I want to transition to a few lighter items uh, with which we can bring this wonderful conversation to an end. Uh, my first question to you is, what is one of your favorite science films? Now, in anticipation of Christopher Nolan's forthcoming film, Oppenheimer, uh, for which I've just purchased my IMAX tickets, uh, this is very much on my mind. So I have to ask you, what is your favorite science film to date? Oh, that's a difficult question. It's funny. The first uh, one that came to my mind was Planet of the Apes. Very good. An excellent selection. <laughs> because it provokes so many questions about what makes us human and, and how we would respond to another more intelligent species coming to Earth. Yeah, another humanoid species. Now, would this be the Mark Wahlberg version or the original version? Oh, the original, of course. <laughs> not a Wahlberg guy. He's a he's a, a Boston native, is he not? No, no, no. It's it's. I have nothing against that particular film. <laughs> it's just that I have a a fond spot in my heart for the original. That's all. Of course, I understand, and it's a it's, it's an exquisite film. Yeah. Uh, do you have um, a plan to see Oppenheimer when it's released in late July? Oh, absolutely. Oppenheimer is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And are you interested in that uh, more from a historical perspective, a filmmaking perspective, a physics perspective? Uh, what, what draws you to a film like that? Well, I think Oppenheimer's st personal story and the struggles that he faced, uh, because, of course, he ran the Manhattan Project and in a sense felt personally responsible for having brought into existence the atom bomb the story itself is just endlessly interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I can't wait to see how meticulously and scrupulously they attend to the physics component and make that digestible to a, to a larger audience expecting grand displays. And I must say, reading your book was a perfect primer. <laughs> Thinking about quarks and these subatomic particles and the hydrogen and the helium and all these physile and uh, the, the fusion and the fission taking place and all these sorts of things yeah. really uh, has 
increased my excitement for for what should be a very good film. Yeah, so, I mean that that was one of the really fun things that I took out of uh, my research was realizing, oh, your body and my body in the end it's something like eighty octillion electrons scores more quarks and scores more gluons which glue the quarks together and because quarks and gluons are the fundamental uh, particles that make up uh, protons and neutrons ultimately that's all we are is collections of electrons quarks and gluons and yet we are so much more than that and vast amounts of empty space <laughs> That's right. In and vast amounts, ninety nine point nine 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 nine. Vast <laughs> amounts of uh, right. yeah. So That's considering right. how far apart, relatively far apart, the electrons are from the, the nuclei um, around which they are revolving, it's extraordinary to think that if you were to you know collapse us into our you know, you know, our, our smallest, densest form, it would, we would be a speck of dust. And that's extraordinary to think when you're right. looking at your hand before you and your physical body and your desk and your water bottle to think that, no, it's, it's mainly just space. And it gets back to insights uh, for which our Greek forebears are responsible. Uh, you know, the atomists, Democritus and figures like him saying, okay, well, all I see or all I think I see in my mind's eyes uh, or are, the atoms, the indivisible units, and space. And that's an idea that was oh, conceived of so many thousands of years ago and by and large holds true to this very day. Uh, so that's something that I find fascinating, that continuance of these theories that are challenged through the course of their lives. And maybe they prevail in the end or, or maybe they don't, but they're they have such a long tail behind them. And I, I think that's just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I should note, quarks, of course, is a word coined by none other than James Joyce in Finnegan's Wake, after which my channel is named Finnerin's Wake, which is my last name. All right, so there you go. There's, there's a small connection between quarks <laughs> and this channel. And I do mean small. Uh, so excellent. So Planet of the Apes. And I have one final question maybe completely irrelevant, but I, I did note it in the introduction of your book. I thought it was interesting. Uh, you mentioned that your daughter became a vegetarian. Now, has she maintained her vegetarianism or is she a pot, an apostate from the, from the world of, of the vegetarians? She's no longer a strict vegetarian. She did a lot She's of traveling. Lapsed. She's a lapsed vegetarian. Well, she did a lot of traveling in other countries, and she mm -hmm. found that it was difficult. If you go into somebody's house, and you know they—that's what they eat—is they eat meat. It, you know, it's—it's—it can be difficult to. So, uh, she's a mostly vegetarian, but not plant-based. Plant plant vegetarian. Plant uh, and I only—I only ask not to delve into your history, but I, I noted it in the introduction. I thought it was interesting. And I also spent uh, about four years as a vegetarian. And I, I think it's interesting when you think of what's gotten into, well, what are the, what are the atoms of which you're composed uh, based uh, on your diet, of course, because that's the most immediate thing that's in you. It, you know, <laughs> of course, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't speak to the, the thousands of years of, or millions of years behind us, but certainly it's what is being put into you. So I just wanted to ask that little question there. Let me uh, leave the floor open to you now at this point. Is there any parting message that you'd like to convey to our audience? Well, let me uh, mention, too, I just want to follow up on the vegetarianism first, because 
being vegetarian is a wonderful thing and you can, as I learned, be absolutely healthy uh, while being a complete vegetarian. But you're right that in the end, plants make almost everything inside us, right? And in fact, your body and mine is 90 by mass, over 90% the product of photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Like 63, or I think it's 73% of your mass is carbon and oxygen that came from what that was once carbon dioxide floating in the air until plants and other photosynthesizers uh, captured it and um, uh, turned it into sugars, which is, and ultimately it found, it found its way to us. Uh, but, you know, the, one of the things that I, I really got out of writing the book that, that, that I hadn't fully appreciated before is how unbelievably complex our bodies are. I mean, random particles, quarks, electrons, and, and uh, uh, protons, and that came out, um, quarks, electrons, gluons that came out of, blue, uh, of the Big Bang. Now, you know, your body and mine is 30 trillion cells. And each of those cells have like a hundred uh, trillion atoms in them, in every single cell. And they create an unbelievable diversity of molecular machines inside our bodies, all kinds of organelles and, and um, pumps and, um, and other kinds of things with whirring parts that, that, that do work. And so, you know, there's a way in which, um, uh, you know, when I think about the journey that the particle, the atoms and the particles within us took from the Big Bang to us here, not only is it remarkable, but, you know, I, I come away with the same kind of feeling I get when I visit the Grand Canyon or when I, you know, been in the Himalayas and looked at the highest peaks is, you know, again, just a feeling of awe and gratitude that this unlikely series of events ended up making us. And, and retracing that journey has, has been a powerful uh, lesson for me in uh, recapturing that emotion. And I think that's a beautiful and edifying note on which to end, and that is the gratitude. And I feel that as well. And Having read a book like this, that sense is strengthened because as you, as you note, these are processes of which we are not only unappreciative, but almost completely unaware yeah. from day to day, unless you put forth the cognitive effort to think about the carbon dioxide that's being captured by these plants and who are then undergoing these processes to produce for us everything of which we are then composed. It's such, an, uh, such a, a grand and yet infinitesimal design. I, I hate to use that word, of course, having already covered um, those topics uh, relating to religion and science earlier, but for a metaphor, for an artistic use, I'll say design. And it's, so, it's just so beautiful. And again, your book shines light on that beauty just as the sun is shining light on those plants. So I would encourage everybody to take a little bit of time and to, to think about all the processes that are going, around, going on around you. 
whether it be in the soil or in these plants before you, or as you put your fork into a, a vegetarian eggplant parmesan or a, a, a veal you know, cutlet, whatever it might be, think about all those indiscernible, undetectable little chemicals that compose these great things that we nourish ourselves with and build ourselves out of and, and really take pleasure in that. And of course, I will end once more, not that it's needed, with another endorsement of this fine book uh, available anywhere that such books are sold uh, and at your local libraries, I'm sure, at which I picked mine up and I now have it in my Amazon cart <laughs> for a more permanent um, proprietorship. And of course, with that, I encourage everybody to subscribe to this channel, to share this episode with a scientifically curious family member or friend uh, to whom I think it could do some good. So with that, Dan, I thank you one more time for your generous uh, allotment of time that you've given me uh, for this wonderful book that you've written and for the great work I'm sure that you'll do in the future. Thank you again and farewell to everyone. I'm Daniel Finneran from Finneran's Wake. <laughs>